Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Fiona George is the Executive Director of the Greater Yuma Port Authority in the state of Arizona. The Yuma Port Authority is a regional 501c3 nonprofit made up of four government entities and whose mission is in part to represent the Yuma community and pose innovative solutions to any issues within the economic and trade realm between Mexico and the U.S. Fiona is also a licensed real estate agent as well as a cancer survivor. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Fiona. Hey, Emily. Thank you for having me. Super honored to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited that you discovered the Hazard Girls podcast and became a listener and a fan and now a guest. Uh, We're so excited to speak with you in part, you know, to hear about a lot of aspects of your journey, your career journey, and also to hear about what it's like working at a port authority. So we have had women in the transportation industry and similar industries on before. So, but this is a new perspective for us. So this will be very good to hear. So you're the executive director of the Greater Yuma Port Authority in Arizona. Can you explain a little bit to us about your organization and your mission? I assume it's like much different than the one here in Philadelphia that we have. So what's it like on the border in Yuma? So I have to specify that we're a land-based port of entry because there's obviously no water or surrounding Arizona. (laughs) That's kind of like a common confusion. And so it's the international border between San Luis Sonora and then Arizona. So essentially the organization started, I want to say 1998, and it was focused on developing a two-port solution. So at one time, the commercial port and all the commercial traffic went in with what we refer to as POV, so the private vehicles, was kind of all in one conglomerate. So the Port Authority came in, acquired land from the federal government, and then they separated the commercial port and the commercial traffic from the private vehicle. So as of right now, I've been with the authority for about three years. I've always grown up on the border, so always had kind of like a knowledge of it, but not obviously as extensive as now. So the main focus is obviously to enrich any type of economic development with the trade and then efficient logistical routes for the trucks coming northbound. Whether they're going further north, you know, east or west, we just wanted to ensure to have overweight truck routes already implemented. So that's a lot of work with the Department of Transportation and then just ease of access, because obviously anything uh, having to do with logistics, you know, it's a matter of time to market. So we really wanted to respect the truck users and the companies that were utilizing our port of entry and, you know, obviously give them obviously a good experience here through Arizona. So we're located about 45 minutes from, there's another commercial port of entry through Mexicali, which is California. So ADOT versus Caltrans, you know, obviously different states, different laws, different regulations. Some companies see benefits coming in through Arizona versus California, but then that's dependent on where their destination is. If there's a lot of them going to obviously the port of Long Beach, which is 
majority where they go, you know, depending on where their final destination is. So sometimes they would use the San Luis port of entry or sometimes they would use the Mexicali. So I have to kind of specify San Luis Sonora, which is a Mexican side over here, has a population of about 200,000. And then Mexicali over on the Baja California side, they're in the million plus as far as population is concerned. So take that into consideration with how many more manufacturing plants you have, you know, how much bigger your labor pool is going to be. So we always, you know, have to take that into consideration. But if everything were to funnel through one port of entry, it would obviously be more congestion. And that's what Mexicali faces because they really do have high volumes compared to Arizona. So anyways, I was like, that is kind of what the background on the Port Authority is here. Uh So I have an executive board made up of uh, community leadership. Uh And they are absolutely wonderful. A lot of them have turned into mentors. A lot of them have turned into friends. And I'm really very appreciative of them because I have never executive directed a port authority before. (laughs) Well, not many people have. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not like, you know, I stepped in the role and knew what I was doing. I mean... There yeah. was probably half the time where they knew I was fumbling, but, you know, they stuck with me and they've helped me and they've been very graceful towards me. So I'm very appreciative towards my leadership. Now, going back to the idea of the Port Authority, it's a nonprofit, which I find interesting. You said 1998 it was founded or some or thereabouts. What was done before this nonprofit formed at the border? How did they regulate the flow of traffic and the border issues. Oh, well, everything came out through one port of entry. So we had the principal one. So the trucks would go in through two bays on the very left-hand side, and then the other traffic would go in through the rest of the lanes. So right now there's eight lanes at the San Luis port of entry for the private vehicles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are just undergoing a remodel. So that's for the private vehicles. It's going to be an expansion from eight lanes to 16 lanes. Because mm-hmm. uh, roughly we see about two and a half million cars, and that was numbers that was reported to me yesterday on the northbound traffic. So you're wanting to make sure that obviously that is efficient as well. We have seen escalated border wait times for you to kind of come across, even if it's sentry or ready lane or just general lane. Because look at it as volume of 2.5 million cars coming into the U.S. every year through eight lanes of traffic. So again, with that expansion, yesterday actually was our first technical meeting, you know, working with GSA, the Department of Transportation, obviously all the local municipalities, how everyone kind of has to, you know, work together because at the end of the day, it's a matter of national security. So the port of entry has to continue to work efficiently and Uh safely while they're building the other one. So hopefully it's in procurement right now with GSA. So we're looking from what I understand about groundbreaking in about 2023. So then that will bring in obviously a different type contractor, provide so many more jobs. And we're probably looking at a three to four year timeline for full completion. So at the end of the day, it will provide a lot for our economy, especially if there's, you know, people coming in from out of town as far as specialists and, you know, everything. It's not my project. I have to specify that. Like this Mm -hmm. is strictly a general service administration project. It just happens to be happening in our area. And it was a long time coming. So everyone is really happy because I've had people that have been you know, since day one asking for an expansion. And we're talking probably about 10 years ago when Mm -hmm. I didn't even know the Port Authority was around. And I kind of joke with my board 
because they said, well, in 2000, and I said, look, you guys, I was a freshman in high school. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like you couldn't have asked me what was going on where, you know, yeah. and so they get a kick out of that. You know, they've got lifetimes, you know, ahead of me where I'm just like, hey, what have you seen? What have you learned? You know, what do you think we can implement? What's going to make things better? Let's not have history repeat itself here. And we've been able to make significant strides, I'd I'd say, within the last three years. Like I had mentioned, we have an industrial park development immediately adjacent to the commercial port of entry. So essentially, when they came in and purchased the land, there was, you know, uh, CBP took what they were going to do for their operation, Department of Transportation allocated land for their operation, and there was excess land left over. So it is the Gary J. Magrino Industrial Park. Gary J. Magrino himself still sits on my board. And he is my guru. You know, I was calling mm-hmm. my godfather. <laughs> he was the one that initially established the organization, you know. And so I go back and I refer to him because he has a really significant background in logistics. So as of right now, so I currently have one one acre parcel available. And we're about to start our phase four development for about 75 acres. Again, light industrial adjacent to a commercial port of entry. So ideally, we've got Right now, under construction through a private entity, 75,000 square feet of dry storage. They just completed a cold or a freezer storage facility, 50,000 in uh, just complete freezer storage, which is absolutely amazing because I got to see that project from beginning to end, which was like the first project I got to see. And then down the street, he also has operations from California to Texas, you know, as far as the logistic routes is concerned, which is the R.L. Jones facility. And they have awesome dry storage as well as cold storage. And they just broke ground on their expansion about two weeks ago for additional storage for their clients. So and these are all, you know, custom brokers. And, you know, anything to be able to kind of facilitate towards their clients and the Port Authority has something to do with that as far as being able to provide land for them to be able to do their development. Mm -hmm. The Port Authority oversees solutions for the city of San Luis, the city of Yuma and the sovereign nation of the Cocopa. How do you deal with the competing interests between these two entities? I mean, between all of these entities, really? Do you have to ask me that? (laughs) Yes, that's what I'm interested in. (laughs) You know, so far, the logistical routes outside of the commercial port, there's immediate access to, you know, for the trucks to do an eastbound lane that eventually end up in the city of Yuma. And then Mm -hmm. if they're going to go more westbound traffic, they have the option to utilize, you know, what's uh, considered Highway 95. So the Cocopa Nation has, we know one of their casinos is located right off the 95. They also have a fueling station in order to be able to accommodate to, you know, to them. And then the city of San Luis, you know, obviously has its, uh, the tax benefits because that's where the industrial park has gone. So anytime there's any type of uh, development there, you know, you see obviously a positive impact when it comes to, you know, the tax base and the sales base there. So as of right now, there's no per se competing interest because everything that flows out of the commercial port of entry will touch every single entity and touches Mm -hmm. everywhere on the community in order for the trucks to kind of go from point A to point B. So, you know, as of right now, we don't have per se any type of, you know, more interest here versus more interest there. I mean, at the end of the day, some of the economic development has spurred expansion. 
So if they don't want to, or if they feel it's more beneficial to expand in Yuma versus San Luis, again, I'm going to have a positive impact no matter what, because if we happen to be their first point of contact, you know, with me having a real estate license also, if they're looking for any type of specific zone property, then, you know, I'm able to help them on that aspect as well. Mm -hmm. Well, as we've been talking about, this is really a multicultural area of the U.S., um, there are there's Native American communities there. It's on the border of Mexico. You yourself are Latina, I believe you mentioned in your bio. Is that right? Yes. And so what's it like as a woman and as a Latinx person in government or nonprofit leadership there? Have you faced any issues or special challenges that you've had to overcome adversities you've had to you know, deal with as far as your career in terms of, you know, these issues of diversity, race, gender, and such? So background, I'm an Irish, Russian, Mexican, which I tell people like, I'm a phenomenal drunk, but then I'm a better dancer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because of all that going. So I'm named after my grandmother. That's where Buna comes from. It's obviously not a very traditional name. I was getting called Mr. George at a lot of the meetings I would attend, you know? I'm waiting for Mr. George or, hey, I've got this fellow George coming in from Yuma and I'm all... Hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm a lady. I've always been a lady. You know, I feel yeah. like I have to go a little further into that. You know, I joke with my chairman and I tell him, and I said, you know, the only reason that you opted to hire me is because, you know, I'm built like a bodyguard, right? And it was just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So I go in and I hold my own, you know, outside, like, you know, you kind of, you have to finesse it a little bit, joke about it and say, you know, actually, you know, I'm not a mister, I'm a miss, you know, and just kind of go into that. But I did have one, (laughs) I guess I can say one person, you know, that kind of stated to me when I was up from my contract renewal, you know, that they didn't have much faith in me when I first started. And he said, they told you this? Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Because I was like second draft, I guess you can say. They had opened the position. They had hired a gentleman before me. And I think he stayed on for less than 90 days. And then the position opened up again. And then I applied again and then ended up getting an interview and then ended up getting hired. So, you know, his comment was one of those, it was negative with a positive connotation. You know, he said, I didn't have much faith in you. And he said, I know you weren't our first hire. He said, but you have surpassed all of my expectations. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay. So obviously going into it, I knew I was going to have to work like extra hard because it's not the executive director prior to me. He had retired once the commercial port of entry was built. So once it was built and he felt like his mission was completed, he went ahead and retired fully. So it's not like I had somebody to shadow I didn't have anybody to answer my questions. It was a matter of, you know, I was put in an office and with just a bunch of archive boxes, I had read everything I could as far as what was posted online with their meeting minutes, just to try and get a feel for the organization. But again, I had to do like a lot of that work in order for me to feel like I could kind of prove myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because when I read the job description, you know, it had like 40 bullet points. Well, not 40, but, you know, significant amount. And I think I could like check off two and I'm all, Ugh. and then I just hit apply. Like, we'll figure it out. And, you know, I feel like I have, I have kind of like, like an easygoing personality. And, you know, I was mentioning earlier and I said, I could make a friend no matter where I go. 
So it's just a matter of, I know I have a civic duty in this position. So you go out with an aspect to serve. You know, sometimes do I get frowned upon because I'm Hispanic or because I'm female? Well, my name's Buna George. And if you were to see me, you don't see the Hispanic in there until I start speaking Spanish to you. You know, I've been to some meetings where they were in Spanish and somebody came and asked if I needed a translator. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm good. You know, (laughs) not realizing I look as, quote, American, you know, as I do. And when I've had the chance to travel, like I've had the chance to travel to Mexico City for a few meetings, as well as uh, San Luis Potosí is where I ended up going last year. And they're like, where's your accent from? And I'm like, I have an (laughs) accent. (laughs) Because border Spanish is obviously intertwined a lot with English. So you have like that kind of the Spanglish slang. You get, you know, the deeper into Mexico, you have more of a formality. And, you know, I almost feel like, oh, she's out from the country. It's like, where exactly is she from? You know? (laughs) So you grew up in Arizona? I grew up here in Yuma. Uh-huh. So mom's from, it's another border community called uh, Los Algodones, also known as the, I think it's the Molar City is what social media has pegged it as. And so because there's a high volume of dentists down there. So a lot of the snowbirds, you know, come in and snowbird here because we have beautiful summers. In fact, right now, I think it's like 70 degrees and absolutely beautiful. And so we grow in population here in Yuma County. We double what's called our peak season. So that's from November to April. So we have the snowbirds come in, which are the winter visitors, Canadian, North Dakota, some people from Minnesota, just all over the place where there's snow. And then also we have our migrant pool, our migrant workers that come in and do the winter vegetables. So obviously somebody has to work those. So we double in population there. I'd like to go back a little bit and talk about, you know, how you got the job. I know that you said you weren't even sure you were qualified, but you went ahead and applied. And I think it speaks a lot to your courage and personality that, you know, you were able to do that to, you know, to apply, even though you didn't, because they say women often, we feel like we're not really fully qualified, but then we don't apply. But men, they look at it, they see that they have one qualification and then they feel like they should get the job and then they go ahead and apply. So it's sort of like a difference in female and male culture sometimes. But, you know, I love that you went ahead and applied and it speaks a lot to your personality. Can you tell us a little bit about the background that goes into getting a leadership position at a nonprofit like the one you're in, in the transportation industry, like the Port Authority? How did you prepare to get this job? Is this what you studied in school? What was your background? educationally? So I have an undergrad degree in urban planning and development. And, you know, ultimately, I felt like I had a civic duty, but I didn't know how to fulfill it. So I had a conversation with the chairman of the board, not knowing he was a chairman of the board of the Port Authority. I had just seen him as an active council member and on other boards around the community. So we went out to Starbucks and sat, had coffee. This is while you were in undergrad? Yeah, this is while I was in undergrad. Uh huh. And so I basically had a very frank conversation with him, never met him before, but had only seen him. And I think he had heard of me, but, you know, was neither here nor there. So it was like, hey, you gentlemen, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Help me. (laughs) (laughs) And so we kind of got into conversation about really, I wanted to hear about what he has done and what really drove him. And he said, hey, I knew I had to make a difference in my community. And this is what I've been doing. So I kind of geared towards that. And he's the one that initially told me about the position, you know, and he said, if you really want to get involved, he's like, we've been, you know, having some issues trying to come up with somebody that's going to fill this role, you know, look into it. If you feel like this is something you like or you could do, he's like, just apply for it. 
Mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, that's when I read the job description and I had never been in government work. I had started a nonprofit, but that would have like a cancer, more like a touchy feely background, not anything government related. So, you know, when I applied, like I'd say that they, they hired somebody else and then I ended up being second draft, which was okay with me because I'm still second draft three years in. So that means I stayed and obviously did something right. <laughs> So are you saying you got this job right out of college? I was still, because the program that I did through Arizona State was an online program. Yuma doesn't exactly have, you know, the universities here. So anybody who wants to do more education is either going to, there's a few hybrid campuses here, but not anything that I wanted to study because I didn't want to go into just business in general because I felt like I had a good understanding of that with my real estate background. And I was doing real estate full time at the time that I applied for the position. Living off of commission based income is nerve wracking. I mean, it can be exciting and it had its high moments, but when it's got a low moment, oh man, I tell you what, you know, so I guess going back to your question, that was the background. And I did as much research as I could know how to research on what exact a position like that entailed. So it was a lot of kind of bookmarking and reading and understanding and seeing and then trying to kind of catch myself up based on the past, you know, on their past meeting minutes and everything I could acquire online. So when I came into the interview feeling prepared, and then there was a lot of questions, you know, that I wasn't familiar with, but I was able to kind of scoot around them. So if it was basically, it came down to if there's something I don't know, I will seek out somebody that knows it, learn it, and then go with it. I think that's a really good lesson because a lot of people think, you know, especially in starting out in your career, you think that everyone, you know, above you in these positions, they know it all. They must know it all, right? But it's just not the case. I mean, a lot of people, uh, professionals, very competent professionals are learning as they go. And we have to normalize that and realize that it's okay to learn as you go. It's okay to seek out help, even when you're in positions of leadership, because that's how we get better and grow. I'm interested, and you mentioned a couple of times your real estate career. Was that your first career? So I've been in construction and trade since I was 17. So dad was a builder, Mm -hmm. uh, grew up on a job site, and that was really fun. And so I ended up going into HVAC right out of high school. So I worked as a head dispatcher for an air conditioning company for somewhere where it's 120 degrees in the summertime. It's like job security, right? And (laughs) from there, I just kind of kept with an administrative role when it came to construction. So I got to be a part of the trade companies and then a part of the building companies. And then finally, one day I said, I should probably get a license. And I had toyed about it. And my employer at the time was working for a big property management company, had about 175 units. And she said, I need somebody who speaks Spanish that has a license. Would you get licensed? And I said, yeah, sure. And at that time, it was for $45,000 residential vacant lots. And I said, I'm in the running, man. I'm like in where the good stuff is. <laughs> <laughs> so I've gotten licensed and I've always kept a career. And then I've always kept my real estate license, obviously active. So not knowing that. I mean, now I know it's like the big side hustle, you know, hashtag social media. And I was like, I've been side hustling for years and didn't even know it. (laughs) A lot of women in male populated industries like construction and transportation have tell me, because I speak to so many of them, tell me that they are very influenced by their dads growing up. And 
You said your dad was a home builder. I'm just curious, did you spend a lot of time with him in childhood talking or learning about construction? And did he influence your career? You know, that was just something that dad did. And dad was phenomenal at it. And mom has an administrative accounting background. So I kind of fell into like the happy medium of what they were both doing. So dad's still a master tradesman. And and I guess that goes back to the mentality of I was never encouraged to go to school. Like school wasn't a big thing for the family. You know, I lost my grandmother last year. And, you know, if you trace back the generations, you know, I had my mother's mother, you know, she was washing clothes and hand making tortillas in order for my mom to be able to go to school. And, you know, my mom traveled to like a different city and then lived with, you know, people that were like extended family so she could get her education. And, you know, and then I come into like this leadership position. So I'm very grateful for how that turned out, because if it wasn't for my Nana making tortillas, you know, my mom wouldn't have gotten where she was and then just encouraged me to kind of always just keep a good job. But again, it goes back to, you know, you work the smarter, not harder. And I just was kind of programmed to just work, 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 you know, until I got somewhere. So I had a positive influence from my dad because I had like a really good work ethic starting at about 16. And that came from him because that's what I saw my dad do. Like my dad just worked and that's what you do when you're an adult. You just work. You know, it just happened to be an industry that I just tripped into. (laughs) (laughs) In 2015, you were diagnosed with stage two colon cancer and you're now thankfully in remission. And I read that you actually ended up leaving the U.S. to go to Mexico for your treatment. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was actually stage three colon cancer. So at least it wasn't stage four, which is always good. So I'd shown signs and symptoms probably in about February. And I said, oh, I just need to eat more fiber or, you know, I'll just do this. I'll do that. But I was always so busy. I was so busy, Mm -hmm. you know, working and I had social stuff going on and I was just always on the go. And it wasn't until about August when I said, hey, there's probably something wrong. And then finally getting diagnosed in October. And having the doctor tell me, had you waited another few months, it would have been stage four, it would have been metastatic, and we would have had a different course of action. So don't ever be too busy for your health. I Mm -hmm. guess I can kind of start with that. I did the traditional routes here. I had a nine-inch colon resection. So I did surgery, I did the chemo, and then I did radiation. And at my last appointment, the doctors here had said, hey, you know, we think it spread into the omentum. We're seeing some spots you know, via the CT. And, you know, they said, you know, come back in about three months and we'll see if it's grown or not. And I didn't know what to do on the in-between time. So our family physician has always been in Mexico, you know, and I told him and I said, hey, you know, this is what they told me. And he was, he wrote it out with me since day one, because this, our family physician, that's where my parents met. So my mom was a nurse there and my dad was just some random white dude that went into Mexico to get some medical care. And so that's how they met. So I always say, you know, I owe my life to this doctor. And, you know, I had told him and I said, hey, this is kind of what they told me. And he said, wait it out for another three months. So I went down and I took uh, IV treatments, which is high doses of vitamin C and then peroxide. And so we just basically did like an internal blood cleanse for a matter of a few months while I was waiting to go back to get another CT in Phoenix. So, you know, they call it like a a menjurje. So we ended up doing a menjurje of like vitamins and, you know, stuff that was going to essentially boost my immune system. And I went back to do a CT and then there was uh, no evidence of disease. So so happy to hear that. You have to endure so much to get through this phase of your life. And you mentioned before the show that some of the hardest part of this for you was 
mindset. So how did you manage your mindset through this whole ordeal? And how does managing your mindset play into your life now? So the day I was diagnosed, it was October 9th, 2015. And like I had mentioned, I work for a property management company and the owner draws came out on the 10th and the 10th happened to be a Saturday. So it was 7.45 a.m. I got diagnosed with cancer. I had to go to the office because it was 175 owners that were counting on their money to pay their mortgages. And so obviously I had a breakdown in the parking lot <laughs> for about a few hours. Got it. Understandably. Yeah. yeah. Went to the office. The girls helped me out, you know, significantly. I, I got about 80% of it done and then they helped me finish off the 20%. Obviously it was a hot mess. So it's like, I'm trying to work and, you know, I've got 15,000 Kleenexes all around me because I don't know if there's, I'm going to see it tomorrow. Right. And then get home. And it's my first semester at ASU for my undergrad program. And I have a final that I have to take that day. Oh, my gosh. So it was early on. And I say early on because it was the day of diagnosis is when I realized the world is not going to stop turning because I'm having a bad day. And that was tough. That was tough because what I wanted to do is just crawl into a small hole and like go to sleep and not have to think about it because it was obviously it was a shock. And I can honestly say that I've met a different version of me that I didn't ever fathom existed. I read about cancer survivors. I read about people, you know, that went through adversity. I was never one of those people. And I'm like, man, what would I do? And it's like, what did I do? I binge watched Pablo Escobar on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> To kind of get through it all. So I worked majority of the time while I was undergoing chemo and radiation. My employer was very graceful and generous with me. So if there were days where I couldn't make it, then, you know, she understood. She had breast cancer when I started working over there at that company. I was in about 30 days and then she got a diagnosis. So I walked with her through her cancer journey and then she walked with me through mine. Wow. Yeah. So that was one of those blessings in disguise that I thought was, you know, absolutely beautiful. And I will tell you that when it comes to mindset, I'm not scared as much as I would have been because you lose a lot of that. Like you had stated earlier, a lot of people have their day one. And so it was like, what's the absolute worst case scenario that could happen? It's like, I could die, right? And But I had to face that monster for five years and especially going through treatment because I can tell you there was one specific day where I had to wear a chemo pack. So they're like, it's like a fanny pack. And I said, this is not fun, no matter what way you paint it to me. Like, and I have to give it to the nurses because they tried. <laughs> <laughs> and I had had radiation that morning and I had had the chemo on and it was horrendous. So have you ever had like a sunburn on your shoulders and you're like, oh, that hurts, you know? Well, because I had pelvic radiation, I had that same type of burn, but where the sun doesn't shine, it was very uncomfortable. So I was at that time just renting a little one bedroom apartment because I had been putting money away because I wanted to build a home. And I said, and these are going to be my Korean countertops and this is that and this is that. And it ended up being for uh, medical expenses unbeknownst to me. And I was like, Jesus, you're so rude, you know? <laughs> And so I was fortunate, but I stayed, you know, my mom said, because they're divorced, you know, they've been divorced for about 18 years. And she said, give up your apartment, come to the house so I can take care of you. And I said, no, I will not die at my mom's house. I will not die at my dad's house. 
you know, I don't want them to have to live with that if that's what's going to happen. And my dad came into the apartment one day. I was in bed and I didn't even open the door. And he looked at me and I said, bye. I said, I'm just so tired. I'm like done. And then he just like looked over in the bed at me and he said, I'm sorry. He's like, but you can't go before I do. He's all, that's not the natural order of things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, damn it. I guess I can't die today, you know, because my dad told me not to. <laughs> yeah. And so you realize just really how precious not only time is, but the people around you really are. And so I have low tolerance for complaining or griping, or I know people hashtag first world problems, but I said, you know, I live a little bit differently. There's a version of Buna that I never thought was in there that I got to meet, and she's pretty cool. So that's why. I even opted to sign up for your podcast because I said, man, but all these women have like amazing stories. I said, well, I think I have a story, but it was that little voice in the back of my head that will let somebody else tell something, something cooler than what you've done. And I'm like, well, I'm cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm glad you're sharing this with us. And I'm glad you're, you know, you're doing so well. You're so healthy now and in remission and accomplishing so much in your community And, uh, you know, just really being an overall example for so many people in your community and beyond now. Yeah, I hope to be, right? So I don't have any kids. And because of the pelvic radiation, I'm probably not going to be able to have any. And so I don't feel like any less of a woman or any less of a person because that's kind of the case that I've got. So now I'm like, okay, what kind of scholarship foundations am I going to start? You know, I already started a nonprofit with the cancer. What can I do to bless somebody else's kid that maybe loses their mom or loses their dad to the same type of cancer? So I feel like my impact is going to be felt elsewhere. And mind you, I got the, hey, you're all clear. You can move forward in October of last year. So, you know, November and December, I started to have a vision board. I started to have goals. I started to, that was all on hold since 2015. Wow. Because I didn't know Or I didn't want to get my hopes up because what if I do this tremendous goal and then I come back and have like a weird blood test and I'm back to square one. So I was scared. I was scared to look for the future. So right now I'm in the middle of two business plans. You know, I wish you could see my desktop because I've got like all kinds of stuff I want to do. And why not? You know, I'm giving myself permission to be a creator, you know, not necessarily, oh, I want to join this foundation or join this organization. It's like, I can carry out a purpose and a mission as well. Obviously, somebody else had to do that. Like, I'm giving myself permission to do that. So I'm excited because it's almost like this is my second shot, like full-fledged, go forward. And I'm like, I can have a goal today. And that that's like a foreign feeling because I haven't had one in so long. So, you know, what would be your message to other people who maybe are going through something like you went through, you know, during the, your worst times and feel like, it might be hopeless to have a vision board right now because they don't know what's ahead. And what would be your advice to someone like that, how you can help them get in the mindset that you've been able to get into? That it's temporary and you should always have something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So whether if it's, you know, I don't know what everyone's outcome is going to be, whether if it's positive or negative, you know, because people will probably look at mine and say, oh, she can't have kids. Yeah, but I'm still alive you know, or, oh, she can't do this or, oh, you know, and I said, there's nothing to pity me about. Absolutely nothing. Get to know yourself a lot more through, you know, you say, oh, I would handle it this way when it comes to adversity or when it comes to something strong, or I'm also not married and went through 
a heartbreak. And that was a version of me that I didn't like. And, but again, never met her before. Right. And again, it was just, it was temporary. Sometimes that pain is going to resonate with you. And sometimes you're going to look back on it. It'll probably make you shiver. It'll give you like a sentiment, but like, don't stay there. Don't stay there because you're not there. Well, you're thriving now and we're so happy that you're healthy and thriving. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Hazard Girls podcast and sharing your journey with us through your cancer, but also, you know, introducing us to life in the Port Authority and that quasi-governmental organization, everything you're accomplishing there. Congratulations on that. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Emily. Appreciate it. So grateful for you. Oh, thank you. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.